0: Good morning. Thank you for coming out to Berea. Today, I am excited to learn more about God together with you. Let's just imagine that on the way to church this morning, I passed our local Ford dealership and passed a sign that looked like this. Free 2020 Mustang, no strings attached. One per customer, today only in fine print. And what if... I got all excited. I came to church today, and I shared with Annie before now that, you know, after church was over, we're going to stop, and we're going to get some Mustangs, and let's just say that this week, you're driving by my house, and you see a couple brand new, gorgeous Mustangs in my driveway, and you're like, whoa, big offering this week? Whoa. What happened? You know, you stop. You're like, Justin, what's the story? Tell me about these new Mustangs. You're like, man, it was free to anybody on Sunday. Would anyone else be slightly upset that I didn't say anything to you today? Would anyone be slightly bothered that I hadn't taken the time to mention it? Just 15 seconds. Hey, as you leave today, stop at the Ford dealership, get a free Mustang. Well, likely... You would be really angry with me. Well, (laughs) how about this? If it would be selfish, if it would be absurd for me not to tell you about a free Mustang, well, then how much more absurd would it be to keep the best news in history to myself? That you can not only have a free Mustang, but you can have free access to heaven and escape the judgment of hell. Would it not be absurd and selfish for me not to share that with you? Now, I think that Jesus and his good news is way too good to keep to myself. But often, I struggle, and I think probably you might too, with sharing this good news with other people because we think, well, man, I don't want to be rejected or I don't want to cause any significant issues in this friendship or this relationship. And we often feel that our faith is personal and it's private. But Jesus had very different ideas about faith. He didn't come to launch a movement of secret service agents who were working undercover. Jesus came to to launch a very public global movement. And one day he explained it in a certain way to people that surprised and likely confused them. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to take a a little bit of time today to look at this story that Jesus told. Matthew chapter 5. This is the second installment of our parables series, stories that messed up religious people. And you know what, if you're, if you're at Cincy or Bainbridge or watching online and you're joining us here at Green today, welcome. We are here just three-tenths of a mile away from the Ford dealership with those Mustangs. There's going to be a run there, I think, this afternoon. Well, here we go. We're going to read a little bit of Jesus' most famous sermon. It's also his longest recorded sermon. And it's titled, The Sermon on the Mount. It's given to us in Matthew 5. Uh, I have been, some of us from our church have been to this spot where Jesus delivered this message back in 10 years ago, actually. We sat on that mount. We read this message, the whole sermon together together. And it's a beautiful spot for an outdoor worship gathering. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because it was indeed on a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, one of my favorite spots on planet Earth. Jesus had just recently begun his public ministry, he was already creating a stir with his teaching and and his miracles. And crowds are gathering and they're clamoring to hear more from Jesus and to see more of what he does. And this day, Jesus is not going to disappoint. Chapter five, verse one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. That was how you would teach back in that day. And we do that here at Berean today. We we kind of sit down and, and teach. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So you might wonder, well, who's Jesus talking to here? Is he talking to the crowd or his disciples? And the answer is yes, both. In fact, at the end of his message, the crowd is gonna have a stunned response by this message. Verse three, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, Statements, blessed are you, are known as the Beatitudes. And it was a unique way to begin his sermon. Jesus here introduces a very strange kingdom a kingdom that values the very things that all other kingdoms of the world would see as weakness poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, spiritual hunger, mercy, purity, peacemakers, persecutions, and insults. Jesus had their attention verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So when he says you're salt of the earth, what exactly does that mean? Because in our day, you think of salt and you're like, all right, I don't know. It's used to flavor food, I guess. And There's actually four uses of salt. There were more, but four main uses of salt in the ancient world. And the first was the same as ours. It was definitely to flavor food. Salt doesn't add flavor. Salt enhances the flavor of food. And so there's this idea of it being flavor or enhancing flavor. The second use is that it was a preservative. In that day, they didn't have electricity or refrigeration. They hadn't been invented yet. And so to preserve food, to prevent spoilage, they would use salt. It's an excellent preservative. Third use of salt is that it was a disinfectant. They didn't have first aid kits or uh, antibiotics. So they would often rub salt in wounds. And although it would sting, it would aid in healing and prevent the enormous risk of infection. The fourth reason is that salt in that day was so valuable, for the three reasons I just gave you, that it was used as currency. You could buy and sell goods using salt. It was as good as cash. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It's why the phrase, you're not worth your salt, was invented, because a person's value would depend on how much salt they had. So you think about Jesus using this example of salt, and you wonder, okay, well, which example or which type of use is Jesus referring to? Is Jesus saying that we should bring out the flavor of our home and our community, or is he maybe saying that we should we should be preserving goodness in our culture or we should be disinfecting the evil out of our culture or maybe that we should be adding value to people around us and the answer is yes yes God wishes for his people to, to preserve to flavor to disinfect and to add value to their world he intends that he expects, expects that of you and I salt also makes a person thirsty. And our lives should be making people thirst for Jesus. Well, then he goes on in verse 14, and he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Jerusalem was a city built up on a hill, unlike Binghamton, which is built in the So Jesus kind of refers, in a sense, to Jerusalem, and he says, look, if if you're built on a hill, you're not going to be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, these words may be slightly familiar to you. If you lived during the administration of Ronald Reagan, you know that he co-opted some of these words and used them in his famous shining city on a hill line. He talked about America's role in the world as a beacon of freedom, as a, as a lighthouse of democracy. But, but this phrase wasn't expressing Jesus' desire for freedom-loving patriots to do something. It was an expression for for Jesus-loving followers or Christians to be light and to be salt, to be an influence. And although Jesus says this, this wasn't a new concept. This was always God's desire for his people. His people, as you know, up to this point, were the Jewish nation, the children of Abraham. They were his chosen people. Well, he had always intended that they're a lighthouse, that they're a light visible to all. He had always intended that they're flavoring and, and preserving their world. He always intended this for them. In fact, when he called the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, he said this to him. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, the Jews loved the part about God blessing them and them becoming famous but the part they didn't usually do a good job at was this part about all families on earth will be blessed through you they were more often a recipient but not a conduit of the blessings of god too often they walled themselves off or or pushed away from those who were unlike them who were non-jewish and they hoarded god's blessings for themselves other times when they did mix with unbelievers they were not a light to them, they compromised with them and served their gods and adopted their morals. And God would repeatedly send prophets to his people to call them back home to the truth, to the light. At one point, God even sent a Jewish prophet to a non-Jewish city. And you might know this story, Jonah went the other direction. He hated the idea of God's favor or blessing landing on any other people except his own people. And God used a pretty unique fishy method of persuasion to get Jonah to change his mind and go to the city. And he complied, but he certainly didn't want to. And he gave them God's message, but then he sat back and waited for God's judgment. And he was livid, livid when God forgave that wicked city of Nineveh. He was livid because he didn't want God's blessing to go on anybody other than his people. (laughs) So much for being a blessing to all families on earth. And so after nearly 2,000 years of Every generation failing to be a lighthouse, failing to be a salt of the earth, a blessing to the people around them. God finally said, Enough's enough. And he and he launched Operation Global Rescue Plan. And and you and I know it as the birth of Jesus, and then ultimately the 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 crucifixion of Jesus, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday where jesus rose this is this is God's plan to rescue the world, and he's no longer just going to rely on the Jewish people to do it. He put his message in the hands and the hearts of people everywhere. And you wonder, well, how did he accomplish it? How did he take this message globally? Well, he did it by sending his son to the heart of the Middle East at just the right time in history. You might say, well, why was that 2,000 years ago the right time in history? Well, let me give you two reasons why it was. First, because of the famous Romans roads, right? The Roman highway system ran throughout the world that Rome had conquered, and that highway system cut right through the crossroads of the Middle East, The the sliver of land on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, the sliver of land we know today as Israel. And if you wanted to travel between Africa and Asia and Europe, you would likely travel through this little Middle Eastern country, the crossroads of the world that we know as Israel. God perfectly positioned his people to be a lighthouse, to be a blessing, to all families of the world. Another reason that was perfect for Jesus to come then and there is because of this. Does anyone know what this language is? Well, it might be unfamiliar to you, but in Jesus' day, it was known and familiar to just about everyone. This is Greek, but it's not just any Greek, it's Koine Greek. And you might wonder, well, what does Koine mean? Koine just means common. So it wasn't the high Greek, it wasn't the classical Greek, it wasn't the most precise or the most scholarly language in the world, but it was the most common language in the world. The Romans used it for trade throughout the world, and so most people would have learned Koine Greek as their second language that they would trade in and talk to people from around the world. And so you'll never guess what language that the gospel authors use to record the story of Jesus each one of them spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic as their native language, and yet they recorded their story in Koine Greek. Paul the Apostle and uh, the other apostles and even the half-brother of Jesus did the same thing. They recorded their letters and their stories in this common language of Koine Greek. The entire New Testament, 27 books, was recorded in a language that that was the most read, most known, most spoken language in the world. You say, well, why? Well, God was putting his message on the bottom shelf. He was making his message available to every man, woman, and child in the world. So far be it from us today to take this simple message in a common language and to elevate it to the upper shelf where it's out of reach, out of reach, the hands of common people today. 500 years ago, this is why there was the Protestant Reformation, because the Catholic Church had amassed the word of God and the sacred understanding of scripture for themselves, and refused to allow the common person to read or understand the word of God for themselves. They kept it in Latin. And the reformers said, no, the common person should be able to read and understand this book for themselves. It was translated into German and other languages, ultimately into English. So here in the church today, unfortunately, even though we're children of the Reformation, we're protesters of the Roman church, unfortunately, we still put God on the top shelf. We still get caught up in our theological discussions and our deep hermeneutics and debates, and we make it about the original languages. If you go to college or seminary and you study the Bible, it it, it will seem like it's out of reach for the average person. But that's not the only reason that the word of God and the truth about Jesus has become inaccessible to people today. It's not just because we've put it on the top shelf. It's also for another reason. It's, it's inaccessible to some because we've just been silent about it. In much the same way that a year ago, toilet paper was in pretty short supply, the truth about Jesus is in pretty short supply across our country and our world right now. You say, well, why? It's certainly not because there aren't enough Christians. Globally, there are 2.4 billion who claim to be Jesus followers. That's three out of every 10 people. And it's certainly not because we don't have enough access to the truth. This book, the Bible, a collection of 66 books, is the most sold, most read book in human history. And it's certainly not because we're not aware of what's in the book. Many of you who are here listening to me today would know that you know many of the stories and many of the principles of the word of God. So it's not that we don't have the truth or know the truth. It, it, there, there's another problem. And the problem is that maybe we don't fully live it or share it. See, just like the Jews in Jesus' day, we, we have the truth. And we know the truth. Jesus' audience, they, they had the truth. They knew the truth. But they struggled to live and speak the truth. And there was this enormous breakdown. In our culture today, we've shifted. In my lifetime, I've seen some of this shift from a Christian nation to a post-Christian nation. And no longer is Christianity respected. Now it's, it's viewed with disrespect and even hostility. The Bible is viewed as an air-filled, contradictory, uh, hate-filled, narrow-minded outdated approach to morality and family and culture, and to believe this book is unpopular, to, to, to obey the book is unusual, and to speak the truth in this book is unacceptable. And if you do, you're probably going to experience the insults that Jesus talked about in verse 11. And if you're silent, which many Christians are increasingly in our post-Christian culture, That's not even allowed either because silence is violence. And if you don't speak up and affirm the evil in our culture, you will be rejected. But my friends, we're not supposed to run from rejection. We're supposed to lean into it. I mean, verse 12, Jesus said, Rejoice and be glad when you're insulted and rejected for his sake because great is your reward in heaven. You're you're, you're able to empathize with the prophets and Jesus before you who were also rejected for living and speaking the truth. Now, can I share something cool with you about the time and the place that Jesus came and the similarity towards the time and the place that you and I live in today? Because I believe that we have been put here in the U.S. for such a time as this. Let me share something interesting with you. In Our world today, we certainly don't have the Roman road system that connects the world, but we have a new system that connects the world. It's the information superhighway, the internet, and it is now the road that connects the world just like the Roman roads of Jesus' day. And you say, okay, well, what's the language that unifies us? Well, it's no longer Koine Greek, common Greek. You know what the language is today that unifies us? It's it's English. English is the language that's taught around the world. It's taught as a second language. They're clamoring for English speakers to go to these other countries and teach their kids English because it's the common language. It's the trade language throughout the world. My friends, we are positioned right here, right now for such A time as this. Heaven forbid that we now keep silent when all the stars are aligned in a way that allows us to spread the good news like never before. You see, the the Jewish people failed repeatedly to be salt and light. They failed repeatedly to be that lighthouse to the rest of the world. And we would be we would be wise to not repeat her mistakes. So you may wonder, well, why should I be the salt and the light that God's called me to be? Is it so that maybe Christianity and Christians will be respected again? No, Jesus promised the opposite. Okay, so is it that people will, will like me? No, you'll likely gain insult and rejection. Okay, well, is it so I'll feel better about myself then? Well, no. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that... Here's the reason, they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. It doesn't say that they're gonna be magically drawn to me. It's not even about me drawing them to Jesus. It's about me displaying Jesus to them. I should be living in a way that makes Jesus happy. It's not enough for me to know the truth. It's not enough for me to believe the truth. God is and has always called his people to live that truth and to share that truth. Now, some of you are astute thinkers and you're scratching your head this morning and you're wondering, when are we going to get to the parable? I mean, isn't the parable series, the series we're doing now, I I don't see the parable here. And if you're asking that question, you're, you're pretty sharp. When Jesus talked about salt and light, he was moving from the spiritual world to the physical. In one moment, he's talking about mercy and peace and righteousness and poverty of spirit, all these spiritual concepts that are part of his kingdom. And then he shifts all of a sudden, talks about physical things, salt, light. And you say, well, is this a parable. Parables are stories with divine meanings. This doesn't fit the classic definition of a parable. In parables, Jesus would use them to shield the truth from those who were proud or religious and to make it accessible to those who were humble and hungry. But this salt and light stuff isn't a parable, is it? I mean, it doesn't fit the standard definition of a parable. It's it's much more like Uh, two illustrations or two analogies. But there's something a little bit deeper going on here. See, parables are stories, and in any story, you have to have some main characters to make it a story. And in this part of Jesus' message, he's just explained what his kingdom looks like for the hungry, the humble, the meek, and the peacemakers. And and then he turns to his audience and he says, you, 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 are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus on this day exposes perhaps the biggest parable of all that we are part of God's story. I mean, you talk about a ridiculous story. You talk about an unexpected twist with an engaging plot. It's that God's writing a story and has written us in. And here's the deal with the people of Jesus' day, the the Jewish people. Their main role in God's story had been been written out and the, the script had been given to them. They had the law and the prophets. They had the words of Moses and the cameras were rolling but there was nothing to film because God's people were standing there on the stage in the crossroads of the world and they were silent. God put them on center stage so the world would watch and hear and see the good news. But because they were silent, the audience would go away, empty. And many of these Jewish people were were failures in this story. Some of them were even villains. God had not put them on earth to hoard his blessings. He had put them at the crossroads of the world to give them away. God had not put them at the edge of the most traveled sea of their day so they could just get wealthy through their port cities. He put them there to be the lighthouse to the nations of the world. They had the truth. They claimed to believe in the truth, but repeatedly they fell short of living and sharing that truth. They knew the story, but they weren't playing their part in the story. And 2,000 years later, unfortunately, we often walk in their footsteps. We are content to just kind of know and believe the truth. And like Jonah, we kind of hunker down and we wait for God's judgment to come on those out there while we're a safe distance away. But God's heart, it's always been the same. God loves the lost, like we learned last week. God cares about those in the darkness, and he's trying to bring them light through us. He cares about those who are hurting, and he's trying to allow us to be the salt to disinfect their wounds. Jesus is calling his people back to their and to our high calling. And 20 centuries later, his words are still ringing in our ears. Are you salt and are you light? Are you adding value and bringing healing to your family, your home, your community? Are you illuminating the path of Jesus to your friends, your coworkers, your fellow classmates, and your your family? If not, shame on you. Shame on me. Salt that doesn't salt, (laughs) it's worthless. Light that doesn't light and push back the darkness is useless. Jesus looked at them, and today I believe he's looking at us saying, you, you are the salt of the world. You, you are the light of the world. Where's the parable? You are the parable your life is meant to be a story a display of god to a world in need now you will incur the wrath of religious people and you will be hated by those who are hostile to the faith but you will also point them to jesus and make god proud so shine your light and salt the earth jesus has written into you he's written you into the story he's handed you a script The world needs you. Don't keep the good news to yourself. It's way better than a Mustang offer. And I pray and hope that you and I can share that together with those in need around us. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? You know, a little bit of a twist perhaps on our parable series this morning. But Jesus was all into twists. And this story or illustration or analogy that he shared with his people was meant to write them into the story, the divine story of human history. God's people are the salt of the earth. God's people are the light of the world and it's our job to salt and it's our job to light now listen we've made a commitment here at Berean that we're not going to guilt people for not sharing their faith because most people want to but don't know how and so we take an approach where we decide we're going to equip you we have developed a training on how to share your faith with anyone anywhere and it's called 201 share it's really simple and so there's a, a, a handful of lessons and we take you through how to share your faith with anyone, anywhere. If you want a mentor, you can request that. You can go online to our growth process and request a mentor. You can do that at a welcome center at a campus today. You can, you can uh, ask your connect group, hey, could we maybe go through 201? I, I need to be refreshed or I need to learn for the first time how to share my faith and do it with boldness. Do it with compassion. Do it with love. Maybe I need to regain my burden for the lost, my burden for people who are far from God. Maybe your heart has become calloused. It's become a little like Jonah and you run from the very people God wants you to run to, towards, and you're running the other way. My friend, let's return to being the salt of the earth, the light of the world that God has asked us to be because the message of Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. Father, I pray for the the person who's here today who doesn't know you yet as their personal savior, who has not believed in you. I pray that today you'll give them the faith to believe and to confess you as their Lord and their savior. And that we will have the privilege of helping them grow in their new faith and be baptized to, to publicly confess their faith to their new church family. Father, I pray for those who today feel conviction and a need to open their mouth and share the good news, or maybe to live it better so, so that their lives reflect Jesus. Would you help and encourage them? God, I, I pray for those today that are not uh, convicted. They're, they're doing it, and they're encouraged, and I, and I pray that you would encourage them. They're, they're living it, they're sharing it, and they're such a good example to the rest of us. God, help us to be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. Thank you for writing us into your story. It is a privilege to be part of your divine parable, to show the world the Savior that they desperately need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.